Uh, we're looking at a story today that's not quite as long as it might see, seem. It's going to fall out in four scenes. But let's ask the Lord to be with us as we come to the truth of His Word. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, take this story with names and places that we're not quite sure about, uh, and would you, in, the light of, in light of our story, help us make sense of this story? Would we see what Luke longed for us to see as breathed out by you? He told the story and strung these narratives, these scenes together. And would it make sense of our story right where we are? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, why is it that the most important things to talk about are often the most difficult things to actually talk about. If you're in a relationship that's little on the shallow side, kind of shallow how level, uh, you know that feeling of kind of longing for it to have more depth, but at the same time afraid to go there as well. Um, if you're in conflict, uh, in our families typically we don't have much trouble going to that place, but a lot of times we're dealing with firepower kind of present, presenting issues rather than the thing underneath the issue. You know, we might be fighting about how the house looks uh, when really we're fighting over, I want to be loved and valued. Um, or sometimes when it's those outside of us that we have conflict with, some, some, if you like conflict, congratulations. I want to avoid it at all costs. Uh, I don't like going to that place. It's really frightening to me. It elicits all kinds of fears. Uh, when you think about people that have really different viewpoints than you, uh, in an MSNBC and Fox News kind of world, it's scary to go there with everybody screaming at each other. We, we want to tiptoe to those places. If you're like me, when it comes to talking about the most important thing, often we follow the path of least resistance. Uh, but as we look at the book of Acts, we see when God shows up in a community, he kind of turns things upside down. And so this morning, as we step again in these two weeks into the book of Acts, we're looking at what happens when God shows up in a community and how can this make sense for us as well? What happens when God shows up in a community? And how does this make sense for us as well? We're going to see that when God shows up in a community, Jesus promises four things. He promises his presence. He promises protection, his providence, and his power. Now, that's a little sick. That's so polished right now. I apologize. It just came out that way, I promise. He promises his presence, his protection, his providence, and his power. Let's look at scene one. Uh, and uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Let's look back here. After this, this is, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Well, the, after this, as he had just been in Athens, he had been in the spiritual center of the Roman Empire where uh, pagan practices were exalted and he identified and tackled some of those things. Now he's coming to Vegas. <laughs> now he's coming to a cosmopolitan sin city. Uh, so he's stepping into this cosmopolitan immoral place, Corinth, verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's actually far away, uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, read emperor of Rome, uh, astral historical figure, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Interesting, they're continuing to be dispersed. And he, named Paul, went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now let's pause right there. We're still in the middle of the scene to kind of approach uh, what's going on. Uh, Paul, when he would go into cities, always would go to the synagogue. He kind of slows here first. This is one of the three places where he starts with the trade that he had been taught. He had a PhD in scholarly Judaism. 
uh, but he also had a trade of tent making. He knows the task that he's against. When we read the book of 1 Corinthians, he describes himself uh, coming with fear and trembling because this group of people really respected philosophy and eloquence, and he goes slow first. He tries tent making to begin. But he goes faithfully into the synagogue, beginning to connect the dots between the Old Testament expectation and Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Silas and Timothy, who had been traveling with him since he had parted ways from uh, Barnabas, uh, he had left behind in Berea for them to disciple the believers. But they come, and then efforts move forward. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, and meaning he, he goes exclusively here. Listen to what he testifies to. My translation is a little bit different, but follow along. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ, that the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, does that make you think of anything? That's what Jesus instructed his disciples to do when they weren't welcomed in a place. Look what he says, though, in the middle of verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. Hello, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, he's practiced this before. He's never said anything like this before. Uh, he's at the end of his, third, of his uh, second journey. Uh, the third journey is about to launch. I think Paul is God's man on the scene, a critical player in the gospel going out across the Roman Empire, and he's greatly discouraged. He's a little bit like that Old Testament prophet Elijah when he had gone hard against the king who opposed him in Israel. And he was so discouraged. He thought he was the only one who believed in the ways of Yahweh. And Yahweh assured him at his point of fear, he says, don't be afraid, for I have more people in the city. Paul's in that very same place. As bold and as brave and as daring as he was going into the city, he's ex- he is gone and spent. And we hear it coming out through his words. Look what happens in verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. He was a Gentile who had begun to worship in the synagogue and discovered the gospel. His house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, oops, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And here we see Paul's discouragement. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, okay, If I'm remembering right, this is the first time we have recorded Jesus speaking to Paul since he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Listen to what he says. This is central. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word among them. What's Paul experiencing? Maximum resistance. Uh, The resistance is showing up in the synagogue. He has to spill over and go out of there. In the midst of it, he is losing it and discouraged. And Jesus approaches him and says, Do not be afraid. Keep on talking about me and articulating how I am king. uh, And I will be with you. I will not allow you to be harmed. Paul had been really harmed before. He will be harmed after this. This is a provisional in this situation. Jesus stooping to where Paul is at in this present city and saying, I will not allow you to be harmed. I will not allow you to be harmed. And then he gives him 
unbelievable assurance. There are many more who have not yet believed in this city who are mine. Keep going. In the midst of maximum resistance, Paul, experiencing great discouragement, had a promise of the presence of Jesus. Jesus offers his presence. And in light of that as well, he offers his protection. Luke next records a story, just one story that he could have told more of, of how God protected Paul. Look with me at verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region Corinth is in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to, to, go, to worship God contrary to the law. Now, they're pinpointing the Roman law, which only certified certain sects within the Roman Empire that could function. They're saying this is a sect that has not been approved. You can't let them do this. Verse 14, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, he's putting back in their court, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them for the tribunal. This is hilarious. And they all see Sosthenes. You're glad you don't have a lisp if you say his name. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Gallio is saying this, oh, you confused me for someone who cared. He said, you're dealing with your own intramurals. I'm not going there. But God used his passivity. God used his whateverness to provide protection an extension of opportunity for Paul to experience the presence of God, announcing that Jesus, in fact, was the king. He stays there a little bit longer, and then he sets sail. Scene 3, verses 18 through 23, as several cities looped together. Verse 18, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Their names are switched for some reason. I don't know why. At Kentria, he had, he had uh, cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Aren't you glad to know, Luke, when you know he had a haircut? Um, apparently, he'd taken a Nazarite vow, perhaps in response to the vision that had come to him. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Man, Priscilla and Aquila, he's going to eventually leave them in, in uh, Ephesus. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Now, this has never happened before. Before Paul got run out of the synagogue, they're asking him to stay, and he declines. Verse 21, by taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's where he'd started from. After spending some time there, communicate, rest, He departed and went one place to the next, the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, the third missionary journey is being launched. Here's the picture. Paul's at his weakest. (laughs) Paul's needing refreshment. He's at a place where people are intrigued by the gospel, and he knows he must stop. He needs a sabbatical, Eric Youngblood. He needs a break. And he takes it and goes back to the very place uh, that had sent him out. But he rests. Because he knew of the presence and protection of Jesus, he rests in Jesus' providence. Did you catch what he said? If God wills, I will return to you. God would will that. And the narrative goes on to show how God showed up in power. Scene 4, verses 24 through 28. 
Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent or powerful in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, chapter 19 says he, didn't, he was, uh, did not understand of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's where Corinth is, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. The uh, brothers at Ephesus are writing so that he would be received in Corinth. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, had you heard that before? Say yes. Yes. (laughs) That was in the first scene. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's in the synagogue, though he's winding down and kind of at the end of his emotional rope. He's showing them from the Old Testament scriptures how Jesus was the Christ. And what do we find Apollos doing? He's in that very same place. With great power, even in the midst of Paul's absence, he raises up Apollos to announce the gospel powerfully, to talk about Jesus, how he, in fact, was the Christ. God, even in the midst of Paul's weakness, powerfully raises up Apollos to show people that Jesus is the king. As you thread these four scenes together, I think Luke longs for us to know that Jesus promises his presence to all that show that Jesus is the King. Jesus promises presence to all who show that Jesus is the King. Now, what about us? What about us? How could we experience Jesus' presence in the way because our lives show that Jesus is King? Well, it's really obvious. If you just follow the principles of the passage, you find your nearest synagogue you walk in there and show from the Old Testament how Jesus is the fulfillment of Messiah, okay? Anybody want to sign up for a field trip on that this week? <laughs> oh my, you wouldn't start there, would you? I mean, again, Paul started with common ground. That's not our common ground by education or by culture at all. We're in a very different place. So if you're not going to start in a synagogue, where can you start? Does Jesus promise it still move towards you? I really think it does. The promise that he makes in verses 9 and 10 is very similar to the promise that Jesus made with his disciples and all who would follow him. When he called them to go and make disciples of all kinds of people, baptizing them and teaching them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what he promised, and I will be with you. Lo, I am with you always. I'll be with you all along the way. We are assured of his promise. Look with me again at verses 9 and 10. And as we read, I want you to think about you. I want you to think about your context, your relationships, your family context, your neighborhood, uh, your social spheres of influence, your vocation. And hear the promise of Jesus applied to you and your story and your place. Look again at verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. He says first, don't be afraid. 
where are the places where talking about the most important thing frightens you? At that very place, Jesus is inviting you to set aside your fear in hopes that you would be overwhelmed instead of with fear, with hunger for His presence. He's saying essentially, where you're most afraid, dive in. Uh, Bring up King Jesus, the most important one thing we could possibly talk about with great relevance in your life. And in the midst of that, I will be with you. You will experience my presence. Now, when he says no one will harm you, I'm not confident we can claim that. I mean, look what happened to Sosthenes. He got beat up. Well, look at what happened to Paul in other places. I think that's a time-bound kind of situation. In our culture, though, I think you're really okay. I don't think anybody's coming after you physically or going to imprison you if you begin a conversation about Jesus. You're kind of off the hook there. It's not a universal for all time. It was a specific for that particular place because people can lose their lives for the sake of the kingdom. But, but Jesus is stooping to where Paul is at this point. And look at the confidence that he has. For I have many of my people in the city. Paul, you're just going about, as you're diving into your fears and talking about the person of Jesus, you're just finding whom I have appointed to believe afresh the, the gospel about me. That's what he's calling us to. Not the path of least resistance, the point of maximum resistance in us, within one another, in our conversations. That's the very place when we dive in that we are most likely to experience the presence of God. Now, I'm looking for other places to experience the presence of God, aren't you? I want nice, calm, Eden-like experiences for that to happen in. That's what I would prefer. But Jesus is saying, I'm meeting you in the place of maximum resistance. How might we experience Jesus in that profound of a way? Here's what I think. If Jesus and talking about Jesus is merely a conceptual, a philosophical, a principle-based thing that has no resonance with the real stuff in your life, forget it. Somehow what you are really facing and experiencing and who Jesus as King is have got to intersect for you to experience the nearness of the King and have any fighting chance of talking about Him, right? Now, here's where I've been in the past two weeks. Um, I a little bit tend towards mild depression. My baseline when I wake up typically is depression. I found the thing that fixes that, though. I started this CrossFit group at 5.45 in the morning. Instead of mildly depressed, I wake up terrified of what workout we're going to do. But here, I, I I haven't been down in a while. past two weeks, I've really been down. Jenny's my assistant, asked me one day how I was doing. She wished she had not asked me how I was doing because I was struggling. Uh, You know why? None of my functional idols have been working very well for me lately. Uh, We've had heartache on Maryland's side of the family, death of her father, uh, unexpected death of a brother-in-law. She came back from a vacation that I had planned to go on but was unable to. I'd laid aside June for study, leave, and vacation, and some of it happened. Uh, When she came back, she totaled my Ford Explorer. You don't get very much for a 2001 Ford Explorer (laughs) uh, when it's totaled. And then uh, 10 days ago, uh, two weeks ago, a tree fell on our house. Then my son threw a curveball at me the following Monday that I wasn't ready for. It wasn't anything immoral. It wasn't anything wrong. It just reflected problems in me with something that I had looked forward to 
and prize way too much. See, my functional idols have to do with things going really well and the over-invested emotional wealth in my kids. And none of them were working. And so I wasn't doing real well. When you're experiencing something like that, how in the world do you experience the presence of Jesus? <laughs> how? I suggest three, three aspects that need to be present. We need to have a conversation with the king. Then we need to have conversations with those who are closest to us. And then we can have conversations with those who might even disagree with us. Here's where I went. As I open God's word, when I open this, I'm asking God to reveal in me uh, the sin that's rooted in my heart, the healing or truth about Jesus that brings healing to that particular sin and all its idolatry, and then what's the path that the king calls me on for obedience? It's repent. What is my sin? Believe the truth about Jesus as my Redeemer and King and obey, following my King in the path that He's calling me for. As I turn to 1 Peter, you know what He exposed in me? I've got emotional wealth. I've got hopes and all kinds of trinkety kind of things based on a pretty cush lifestyle that I live. And I thought I just enjoyed them. But you know what? (laughs) I have treasured them. There are certain things I just have to have for life to be worth living. And often, what's not on my list is Jesus. Through the book of 1 Peter, I've had that exposed and had exposed to me what a better source of hope, what a more enduring source of hope Jesus the King is. And he's called me to set aside my little bitty hopes, to affix my hope on a much greater hope. It's slow process, but it's starting to turn. See, I've got to have a conversation with the king about how my life poorly shows that he is indeed my king. And then I've got to have a conversation with those who are closest to me. When I'm dealing business, doing business with Jesus as king like this, I experience his presence. And then when I carry what he's exposing in me and the truth that he's pointing me to in the conversations with Marilyn, she's been so patient with me. She's not a verbal processor, so it pains her to listen to me uh, through this. But she has listened and heard. I've had to confess to my son and my daughter the hopes uh, that I've had that have led to kind of crush or wound them. And that sets a course for my day after experiencing Jesus with them. In every conversation that I have, going to that very same place, navigating the I, I want this and I don't by diving in to raise the the power of Jesus for my particular situation. Uh, Last week, I was with uh, a leader in North Chattanooga. We have gotten behind people where they understand the gospel or not, uh, who are doing redemptive things in our part of town. She asked me how I was doing. She wished she hadn't. (laughs) I said, you know what? I don't know where you're coming from, but God's revealing in me the little affections and things I'm putting my hope in that I've entrusted emotional wealth to and a much firmer place that I need to be. You see, that's a little awkward. (laughs) That's not where most people go, especially with someone who doesn't agree with them. But in that brokenness, I'm finding common ground with this person. I'm convinced that most people on the outside of Christianity have seldom had an honest conversation with someone on the inside of Christianity that having those kind of honest conversations is just the entry point they might need. Does that make sense? 
I think we might experience the presence of Jesus if we practice those kind of conversations. But how? How do you have a conversation like that? It's embedded in what I just said. We talk about our struggle. We're another's. We talk about ours first. Marilyn never likes it when I go to her struggle first. <laughs> but when I share her my brokenness, she's really able to agree with me about that. It's remarkable. Uh, if I've got a context of that, then I can go to struggles that I see hurt in. Talk about your struggle or the others. Talk about King Jesus from the scriptures. Uh, and then talk about the change that he calls for in our lives. I read a story a Saturday before last that was so penetrating for me that portrayed these, three, uh, these things in vivid color. Uh, Paul Tripp is someone, I don't know if you've read him before, who really helps me take the theology I say I believe and actually function out of it. It's remarkable. He was talking about a conversation that he had with his son. His son, when he was in high school, uh, set up to go spend the weekend with a friend, spend the night, the whole weekend. On Saturday, he gets a call from his son's friend's mom who says, I've got to tell you something. Today my son confessed to me that he felt guilty over providing a cover for your son to go do, not spend the weekend with us, but to do something he really shouldn't be doing. And so I just needed to tell you. Paul said, I got off the phone. I was livid. I marched up to my wife, told her what had happened, was angry, couldn't, could imagine what I was going to do the moment he got home. And she says, I think you need to pray. He said, I don't want to pray for him. She said, I'm not talking about him. You need to pray for you. And so as he knelt and began to pray for him and his response to his son, the thought struck him that God's grace was already at work in his life despite what he had arranged for the weekend. Uh, The Lord had led this teenage boy to confess to his mom, who screwed up the courage to call her pastor, uh, who responded angrily but was uh, slowed and softened by his wife and God's spirit to be at a better place for when he came home. God was already graciously at work in the life of his son. His son got home. He didn't pounce. Two hours after he let him chill at home, he knocked on his door. Son, can I come in? Yeah, Dad, sure. Son, have you ever thought about how much it is that God loves you? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. That's remarkable. Two words from an adolescent. I can't imagine that. Have you ever thought about his grace in your life? Silence. I've heard that a lot. Have you ever thought about the power of His grace in your life, even this weekend? To which He said, Who told you? He said, Son, you've been a very good son. In fact, you've been easy. But this weekend, you moved towards darkness. But Jesus leads a kingdom of light. And so I plead with you to respond to Jesus, King Jesus in His light, and to move away from the darkness that you went towards this weekend. That's all I've got to say. But I love you. Now I read that. And then I read that to Marilyn. And then I wept. 
because what a powerful display of God's love and power and grace. And how much I long for the, to experience the presence of Jesus that way with my son, with my family, in my friendships, in my conversation. You see what he did? He went to his struggle. He went to King Jesus. And then he called him to a better place. As he got up to turn around and leave, his son said, Dad, wait. I really do want to walk in the light, but it's just so hard. Can we talk? I tell you, they experienced the presence of Jesus there. You see, we don't need to run to the streets or the synagogues too quickly. We need to have these conversations with those that we live alongside right there when we do presence of King Jesus becomes so real in us that it resonates with all that we come in contact with in the streets or even in scary places like synagogues. Jesus' presence is promised to all who show that he is indeed the king. It's not at the point of least resistance. It's at the point of maximum resistance. But when we dive in there, and speak of him, even in our brokenness, he assures us of his presence. Why can he assure us of this? Because Jesus the King experienced a point in time where he was not present with the Father, but he was abandoned by the Father on the cross, and the Father did not protect him. The Father allowed him to be crushed. He had struggled with providence, if it not be not your will but mine. But God's providence was to crush him as he disavowed himself of all power so that you and I might experience the forever presence and protection and providence and power of King Jesus for us. Aren't you glad he didn't say, your blood be on your own head? Jesus said, no, your blood is on my head. I die in your place and my blood is upon you so that you might be assured of my presence and the Father's presence even in the place of maximum resistance. Let's pray together that we would experience Him in that way. Spirit of God, would you overwhelm our fears with a hunger for Jesus' presence so we might know your protection your providence, and your power. Would you lead us to that place, we pray. Amen.